Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. You say, are we back in Ecclesiastes this morning? Yes, we are. Have you ever had a book, ever read a book that you just couldn't put down when you started reading it? And Ecclesiastes is that way, to me anyway, as I start looking at these things. And I'm going to say a few things very quickly before we begin the message. So for whoever's timing me, this doesn't count as a part of the message. Because I have been informed by some of my family members that I can get a little long-winded sometimes. But I'm just preaching the Word of God. Okay? And if you're worried about timing it, then your mind's not really on the Word of God, is it? As I looked at these first five messages, and this is number five. I see our world today, folks. And I see so many. And I, I look at, I, I've said before, but I've, the more as I prepared this message, I thought again, oh, I wish we could get young people just to sit down and be serious long enough to listen to these five messages. Because this is life. The title of the message this morning is Lessons from a Man Who Came to Hate Life. Now, when do you, how do you come to hate life? The most precious gift outside of Jesus Christ that God has given us is life itself. And how do you reach the point where you say, I hate my life? But Solomon came to that point. He says so in the verses that we're going to read in just a few moments. But he just said, I hate my life. We're going to learn some lessons from a man who decided that he hated life. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm not going to ask you to stand this morning. But honor God's word in your heart as we read. And we'll begin with verse 12. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have the rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity." Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored, therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor, and of all the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all of his days are sorrows, and his travail grief, Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. I open by asking a question. You always open by asking a question, preacher. Well, I've got another one. Do you ever feel or have you ever felt frustrated by life? I think everybody might have to say amen to that. Maybe now and then you have a day that just doesn't go right the way you had planned it or whatever. Maybe you have to deal occasionally or maybe daily with people that just sort of exasperate and frustrate you. That one's for parents mainly, you know. But if you feel that way, you're in good company. Because some of God's greatest servants have found themselves frustrated by life even to a greater degree than you and I have. You just think about, for instance, Job. Job didn't understand why the things that were happening to him were happening to him, and he became so frustrated, he talked about longing for death to come. You look at Elijah. We studied Elijah not long ago, and Elijah had been so encouraged for the Lord and so wanting people to serve God, and yet he reaches a point where he goes out and sits under a juniper tree and he says, God kill me. I don't want Jezebel to, so you just take my life. Moses, the great leader of the Israelites coming out of the land of Egypt, but those people got him so frustrated. Amen. They got him so frustrated that at one point he said, God, just go ahead and kill me. Just get me out of this. And then we think about Jonah. And Jonah's one of my favorite ones to talk about because he is the strangest of them all. Here's a preacher who preached the message God told him to preach and people listened to the message and people repented. And he so disliked the people that he preached to that when they repented, he asked God to kill him. You know, that's pretty bad when a preacher gets in that shape. But all of these had reached a point in life that they were frustrated. They felt downtrodden by life and they just asked God to take their lives. Many people in our world today appear calm and cool, collected, outwardly successful. But I guarantee you that inwardly so many of them are terribly frustrated. Frustrated to the point of just being a basket case. And as I thought about that, I thought probably most of those are Baptist preachers, you know. <laughs> the word frustrated is from the Latin, frustra, which means in vain. And so when somebody is frustrated, they feel like their life just doesn't have a purpose. And they're searching for that purpose in life. Or maybe that people just aren't hearing what they say or listening to them. You know, a lot of times around here, as well as at home, I say this. Nobody listens to me. And I feel that way sometimes. You know, you preach a message, you give instruction. A lot of times you're giving the announcements, you're calling prayer requests, and you call all the prayer requests, and then somebody repeats the name you called. I said, nobody was listening, were they? But sometimes we just feel frustrated. And we're going to see in our text that Solomon reached that point in his life that he was so frustrated, he said, I hate life. But we're going to end on a good note because he gives us the cure for frustration in the end of the message. First of all, I want us to see Solomon's confession in verses 12 through 16. First of all, Solomon says in verse 12 that he had come, or we see that he had come full circle. He says, and I turned myself to behold wisdom. That word that's translated turn is in other places translated return. 
So Solomon, remember, remember in chapter 1, he had examined wisdom. And what was his finding after he examined earthly human wisdom? He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what happens in the first part of chapter 2? He examines pleasure. And he tries all sorts of pleasure. I said he tried wine, women, and song. Laughter and mirth and those things. And that didn't please him. And he said, it's vanity. And so now he returns. And he's going to look at wisdom versus pleasure. Wisdom versus the pleasures that he talked about, the wine and the laughter and the other things that he talked about, the possessions and prominence and all of those things that he talked about in the earlier parts of this chapter. He wants to study the difference between the two and how they affect life and which one is the best for life. Because remember, he's looking for a purpose and for a meaning to his life. And he believed that nobody could challenge his judgment once he made a judgment. That's what he's saying here in the last part of verse 12. I was the king. I had all of these resources available to me. And if anybody could find out the meaning of life, if anybody could find out the purpose of life and which one worked, it would be me. Because he had tried wisdom. He had tried folly and madness and he had tried mirth and music and alcohol and building projects and all of these other things that we've known. He had tried it all and he's still looking for the meaning of life. So here's his conclusion in verse 13. He says, wisdom excels folly even as light excels darkness. Wisdom is better. Human, even human wisdom is better than foolishness because that's the wisdom he's talking about. When he's talking about wisdom here, he's talking about what we would call practical advice for daily living. Maybe some good moral advice for daily living. We might even call it street smarts today. And he's saying even that is better than foolishness. Just a little human wisdom will outshine foolishness just like light outshines darkness. Now, we talk about human wisdom, but I want to say a word for godly wisdom for just a moment. Because there's something better than human wisdom. And that's godly wisdom. In fact, if you will just take a concordance, a good concordance, and look up the word wisdom in the book of Proverbs, look at the number of times the word wisdom is mentioned in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to give you just a few examples. Chapter 4, verse 5 says, get wisdom, get understanding. Verse 7 of that fourth chapter says this, wisdom is the principal thing. Chapter 8, verse 11 says, wisdom is better than rubies. Rubies are a valuable stone, a valuable gem, but he said wisdom is better than it. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? You learn to reverence God. You learn to respect God. That's where wisdom begins is in the relationship with God. Chapter 16, verse 16. It's better to get wisdom, he says, than to get gold. Now, how many of us would like to have a little gold? We had a discussion about gold. It's selling for 50 what? Sorry? 1,600, 18, whatever gold is worth today. Gold is worth a whole lot right now. <laughs> and we'd all like to have a little bit of it. But the Word of God says wisdom is more valuable than gold. Chapter 19, verse 8. He that getteth wisdom, listen to this, loveth his own soul. You love yourself? Get some wisdom. Get some godly wisdom. And then in chapter 23 and verse 9, he says, a fool will hate wisdom. 
So folks who hate wisdom, who hate godly wisdom, the word of God says, not this preacher, but the word of God says they are fools. And so again, Solomon says, it's better to have some wisdom than foolishness. It's better to have light than darkness. So get wisdom. And so in verse 14, look at the declaration he makes here in the first part of the verse. He says, the wise man's, and people say, what does that mean? The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. What does that mean, preacher? The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walked in darkness. Even the person who is worldly wise, even the person who has some human wisdom can enter a situation and see the difficulties, the problems he might fall into, the ditches he might fall into, all right? In entering that situation, he can see the dangers and he can see the advantages of things. He says a fool won't do that. A fool can't see the dangers. A fool can't see the advantages. In fact, Matthew Henry said this of the fool walketh in darkness. He that is rash and ignorant is continually making blunders, running upon one precipice or another. His project, his bargains are all foolish and ruin his affairs. Here's a man that has opportunity, but he operates in foolishness and he loses all of his opportunities. In the meantime, someone who is even worldly wise sees the opportunities and takes advantages of them. And so Solomon is coming to this point. He's realizing that even human wisdom is better than foolishness. It's better than folly, mad folly he calls it. Pleasing the flesh. But he comes to a realization, and this is the one we need to get in the end of chapter 14. Look at what he says. He says, there's a great equalizer. One event happeneth to them all. He's talking about the wise and the foolish. And what he's saying is, death is the great equalizer among people. It doesn't matter whether you're wise, or it doesn't matter whether you're foolish. You know what's going to happen to every one of us? One of these days we're going to die. One of these days, this heart will stop beating, these lungs will stop working, and we will die. One event happeneth to them all. Now, the wise and the foolish may experience some of the same up and downs in life. They may experience some of the same events in life. But there's one thing that is common to them for certain, and that is death. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. The Word of God says you and I have an appointment. We're going to keep it. You're not going to be late for that appointment, and you're not going to postpone that appointment. It's appointed to you once to die. Now, God knows when that appointment is. You and I don't know when that appointment is. But I guarantee you, we're not going to be late for that appointment. James chapter 4. What does James say in the fourth chapter? There he says, For what is your life? But it's a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. It's like going out on a cold, frosty morning, going, and you see your breath just sort of hang there for a second and then it's gone. That's your life. That's my life. That's what the Word of God says that life is. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Because of Adam's sin against God, physical death has come upon all of us. We're all going to die. Amen. We're not going to live forever. And so that's one thing that is common. I don't care whether you're rich, you're poor, you're foolish or wise. 
Whether you have prominence or you're a nobody, as far as the world is concerned, death is coming to every person. The circumstances may be different for the fool and the wise person, but death is coming. The physiological aspect of death is coming to everybody. I said a moment ago, the heart will stop beating, the lungs will stop functioning. They may put you on a machine, but when that spirit departs that body, that body is dead. And as far as I know, medical science hadn't figured out how to get the spirit back in the body. You, you can keep the, the lungs going for a little while with machines, but once the spirit leaves. And so Solomon, after looking at that, just declares human wisdom and seeking human wisdom and earthly knowledge. Why, it's vanity and it is vexation of spirit. He says, since I'm going to end up like the fool anyway, what's the advantage of all of my wisdom? I'm going to die just like the fool. What's the advantage of all of my wisdom? Now listen, I don't think I'm speaking to anybody who did this, but I'm going to use it as an example. So I've learned that I've got to broaden my approach in my messages because we're live streaming and folks that don't know Christ may be hearing this. But if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, thinking that was going to make your life easier, or if you accepted Christ thinking that that's going to make you immune from any kind of problems in your life, you're frustrated by life by now. Amen. Because I tell you what, a child of God is going to experience problems. Somebody said, wait a minute, I'm a child of God. That kind of thing's not supposed to happen to me. Oh, yes, it will. Life for a child of God is filled with the same ups and downs. The same heartaches, the same frustrations. I can name two of our members who are here this morning, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to embarrass you, but I think have experienced some frustration in their lives. In fact, some very recently experienced some heartbreak in their lives. Well, they're children of God. That's, that's going to happen. It happens to all of us. And somebody said, well, if I'm going to have trials as a child of God then it was vanity for me to even become a child of God, right? No, that's not what I'm saying. There's a difference. Listen, all we can do, you and I can do, when a brother or sister in Christ is hurting, when they're frustrated, we can go to them, we can pray for them. We can put our arms around their shoulder and we can say, I love your brother, I love your sister. And here's this, we are family here. And when one of our family members hurts, we all hurt with that family member because we have this love for one another. But you know what? We cannot change their situation, can we? But if someone knows Christ as Savior, they not only know someone, the one, the only one who can give them internal peace, but who can change the situation. See, that's the difference between being a child of God and not being a child of God. We're all going to have problems. We're all going to have difficulties. I'm not wishing this on anybody, but you might have a flat tire going home. And that lost person driving down the road beside you might have a flat tire. It's both going to happen, but at least we know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, all right? He has the power to change things. More importantly, though, the work of Jesus Christ completely altered the meaning of death for the child of God. In so much of a way that death for a child of God and death for a lost person cannot even be considered the same event. Amen. A child of God is facing death 
but death has been robbed of its sting. If you listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, the apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. He asked this question. Let's back up to verse 55. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can face death knowing that we have won over death, hell, and the grave, okay? We have life. We're not going to just die and spend an eternity in separation from God. Our perspective, our outlook is changed forever when we come to know Christ as Savior. The lost person doesn't have that same perspective as he looks at life. But we have new priorities also as a child of God. And we have new expectations as a child of God. And then here's what Solomon acknowledged in verse 16. There's no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. And he says, and they die the same way. Isn't that amazing? Foolish, wise. But they're going to die and Matthew Henry put it this way, the fool is buried and forgotten, and wise and learned men, when they have been a while out of sight, grow out of mind, a new generation arises that knoweth them not. Now many of us remember just, I'm going to take a man that's considered extremely intelligent, and he was. He did not acknowledge God. As far as I know, he died lost, but Stephen Hawking very smart man. You and I know the name. But do you realize if this earth goes on long enough, the only way some people know who he was is by reading his name in a history book? See, we forget. You have probably known or at some point known someone you thought was wise, but then they passed away or you moved away from them and, and now they've sort of gone out of your memory. And that's what Solomon is saying. We're not going to be around forever. And when he thought about that, he said, it's vanity. It's meaningless. And so we come to his complaint in verses 17 through 23. And he says in verse 17 this, he said, therefore, I hated life. He's talking about life under the sun. He's talking about life without giving thought to God, without serving God, without being faithful to God. He said, I hated life. And that word hate, you know what it means? Exactly what it says. He hated his life. He hated life in general. Now it doesn't say he contemplated suicide or anything like that. He just says, I'm sick of life under the sun. Let me tell you something. Folks, I have figured out I'm tired of this world. Amen. I'm tired of this world. I don't fit in with this world. This world and I don't mesh. I don't hate life. <laughs> but I'm not real fond of living in this world when I know that there's a better one that awaits. The atheist Voltaire, you know what he said at one point? Get this, this is a man who denied God. He said, I hate life, yet I'm afraid to die. Well, I could have given him the answer, okay? <laughs> you just come to know Christ, you won't be afraid to die. One reason Solomon hated life as he realized he had accumulated all of this knowledge, okay? And he knew that when he died, all of that accumulated knowledge would end. I mean, who's he going to share it with? You can try to share your knowledge and your wisdom with young people. Love you young people, but you know, <laughs> I was young once too. And you can try to share your knowledge with young people, but guess what? 
Many times they will not listen. They want to try it their own way. They want to do it their own way. So Solomon just said, I hate life. And then he said he hated his labor. We'll get to that in a minute. But just imagine, like Solomon, or like Voltaire especially, having nothing to look forward to but death. You're born, you die. And anything in between is just filling up that time. That's where so many people are today. They see nothing out of life. They see nothing about, they see we're born, we die, that's it. And that is the end result, I think, of the teaching of evolution and the practice of abortion. Young people today, many of them do not take life seriously. They approach life carelessly. And you know why? I came from nothing. I'm going to nothing. You know, there was a time that we were taught, many of us, most of us, all of us were taught when we were growing up, we were taught to place a value on life. You didn't just go out and take somebody's life just because you wanted to. Because taking someone's life, what? It sent them on into eternity. And if they didn't know Christ as Savior, it sent them into a Christless eternity. We valued life. Nobody has the right to play God in this world and decide that somebody doesn't need to live and to take their life. Nobody has that right. We were taught that growing up. And so many today have grown up with gangs and guns and violence and things like that. And they've grown up again with this evolutionary idea and this idea of abortion that I don't really mean anything to anybody and I'm just going to die anyway. And so life is meaningless to them. Listen, instead of hating life, you know what we need to do? We need to adopt a biblical attitude toward life. Where you find a biblical attitude toward life itself. We're going to get this, some of this Wednesday night in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to the first four verses. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In other words, since you're saved, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That word hidden there in verse 3, it is the word crypto. We get our word encryption from it. Our lives are encrypted in Christ. They're hidden in Christ. They're protected in Christ. We don't need to hate life. We just need to live according to the word of God. And then I said Solomon hated his labor. You look at verses 18 through 21. He hated his wearisome effort. That's what labor is for several different reasons. Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me, first of all. You know, I'll just share with you right quick a pastor's heart. That's often a pastor's concern when he leaves a church and goes to another church. What's the next pastor going to be like? I've seen pastors come along behind other pastors and literally destroy churches. A good work where a man had done a good job preaching and teaching the Word of God and somebody come along and just destroy the whole thing. So that's a pastor's concern many times. But one of the main problems of worldly wealth, of leaving a legacy, is that in the end, somebody else is going to profit from it. And that could be a good thing, or that could be a bad thing. But what are you going to leave behind? See, we're all going to leave something. What are you going to leave behind? And in verse 19, he indicates he hates his labor for this reason. He doesn't know what kind of man is going to inherit everything that he leaves behind. Is it going to be a fool? 
or is it going to be a wise man? Solomon, remember, was wealthy. He was the king. He was going to leave a kingdom behind. He had a great legacy to leave behind. All of his wisdom. But who is going to inherit all of that? And in Solomon's case, his fear was well-founded. Who did he leave his kingdom to? A son named Rehoboam. In fact, somebody said it this way. He said, he said Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines and one son that was a fool. Rehoboam, remember what he did when he became king? He went to the old men and he said, how should I rule the people? And they said, if you'll be kind, if you'll ease the tax burden on them, they will get behind you and they will follow you and they will serve you. And he went to the young men his age and he said, what should I do? And they said, tax them, be harder on them. You know, just crack the whip over them, make them mind you. And Solomon listened to people his own age and he split the kingdom and he, in one move, had a kingdom that was only two-twelfths of what it had been under Solomon. And Solomon had said, I'm just worried to death about who I'm going to leave my kingdom, my legacy, all of my wisdom to. We have little or no control over what happens to what we leave behind once we pass away. You realize that? Amen. But Psalm 49.10 says this, for he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. It doesn't matter what you amass on this earth. You're going to leave it behind. You can't take it with you. Verses 16 and 17 in Psalm 49. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. People are living, and some of God's people are living today, like all I can amass on this earth is going to go to heaven with me. It is not. I have never seen, I heard one preacher say all this, but I have never seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul. Okay? You can't take it with you. You can send it on ahead. That's when Jesus said, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. That's what we can do, but we cannot take it with us. And Solomon realized that. And in verses 20 and 21, it's implied that Solomon's great concern was that since the one that he left everything to had not worked for it, it wouldn't mean anything to them. And folks, we see that in families. We see that in businesses. We see that in churches. Mom and dad struggle. They work hard. They work to build a business. And it becomes a successful business. And they die and they leave it to their children. And their children sell it to the first person that wants to buy it for the money involved. And then they go and blow the money. They do the same with the family home. And they just throw it away. But the same I said is true in church life. Do you realize that many of us, if not most of us, are at least second generation, if not third or fourth generation believers. That means our parents were saved or grandparents or, or something like that. And we've grown up attending church. We've grown up hearing the Bible preached. We've grown up going to Sunday school. We've grown up being in the presence of the Lord. And somehow it's just not as exciting as it is to somebody who's just come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. I'm thankful we have people in this church who say it doesn't matter how long you preach. We want to hear the word of God. We want to be fed the word of God. Let me go on to say this. Sometimes we struggle and work hard by God's grace to build a church. 
And to the second and third generation, that church just doesn't mean as much. Standing for the truth doesn't mean as much. Numbers mean more. Success, as far as the world is concerned, means more. And so we're willing to sacrifice the things that people before us worked hard to establish. And I tell you, that's one of my fears as a pastor, that when I'm gone, somebody, other somebodies, maybe when I'm gone and you're gone, there'll be people who come in and say, the truth's not that important. Let's just get people and folks, it happens. And that was Solomon's great concern here in verses 20 and 21. Well, we're going to come to Solomon's conclusion right quick. And he's got two. Number one, he gives us a result of labor under the sun. He asks the question that probably hundreds of thousands of people ask every day. What's the use of it? What's the use of it? What is the use of getting up in the morning, going to work, working all day, coming home in the evening, not really having any kind of life, just go, 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 work, 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 getting all of this stuff, and you're going to die and leave it behind. And you may leave it behind to a fool. What's the use of it? For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart wherein he hath labored under the sun? What is your reward? For wearisome effort and for toil in this life, even if it gains riches, you may leave it to children or grandchildren or to someone else who doesn't appreciate it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, have homes and bank accounts and things like that. But that's not to be our focus. And that's what Solomon is showing us. And in verse 23, he answers his own question. For all of his days are sorrows, his travail, grief, his heart taketh not rest at night. What he's saying is all of his days are sorrow and pain. Why did Job say in Job 14, one man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Okay. Solomon's saying the same thing. And then he says this, his mind gets no rest. When you're living for things, when you're living for material possessions, he says his mind gets no rest even at night. My dad owned his own business. And there are times he could not enjoy family times because of business concerns. Somebody wants this job done right now. The money's not coming in like it ought to come in. Whatever it might have been. And no rest at night. He'd come home from a day's work and then start doing the book work. Or going over plans for a new job to bid a job or something like that. And there was just seemingly no rest at all. His mind had trouble shutting off. From work. And that's the way so many people are today. Going through life in a constant state of worry. If things are bad, worrying that they're going to get worse. If they're good, worrying that they will get bad. I mean, just all of these things. His mind has absolutely no rest. Dad couldn't, as I said, couldn't enjoy family events many times for stress. That's what Solomon's talking about. Sort of like those in Haggai 1.6. You've so much, you bring in little. Okay? It said... You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag of holes. Does it ever seem that way? As fast as the money comes in, it goes out. Many people today literally work themselves to death and never get to enjoy life. Amen. Because they're concentrated on human wisdom and human possessions. Right quickly, here's the reward of life above the sun. Verse 24 is the first positive statement in this book of Ecclesiastes. And look at what he says. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. 
This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So often we have the idea that the world gives us enjoyment and God wants to take it away. Folks, it's the other way around. God gives us enjoyment. The world wants to take it away. It's possible to have joy in this life. And Solomon tells us how. 1 Timothy 6, 17, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trusting in certain riches, but in the living God who giveth us all things richly to enjoy. God wants us, I believe, wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy living and working for Him. He gives us everything to enjoy in a relationship and a fellowship with Him. And here's what Solomon's trying to get across. We are built to worship the Creator, not the creation. Amen. And so many people today, many of God's people miss that. God gives us blessings to enjoy. But listen, those blessings are not the be-all and end-all of life. The worship of God is the point of life. Someone said this, Isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more life seems to come to you. Isn't it amazing? And notice what he says to the sinner in verse 26. Solomon saying, God through Solomon saying, God gives him travail and labor, employment, to gather up and to heap that which he may give to him that is good before God. He takes the blessings away from the sinner and he gives those blessings to his people. And once more, he shows the vanity in that of life under the sun. Living life for human accomplishment, living life for money, living life for personal gain. And so as we close, we're going to see that Solomon gives us some very important lessons I said this is the lessons from a man who grew to hate life. First of all, he says there's ultimately going to be an end to earthly wisdom and to human knowledge. Okay? Or human wisdom and earthly knowledge. It's not saying you shouldn't study and learn. I'll say again, we ought to study and learn as much as we can. We ought to be, especially to young people, we ought to be as knowledgeable as we should. But earthly knowledge and human wisdom are not to be our gods. Number two, laboring for this world and the things of this world are just grasping at the wind. He calls it vexation. Grab a handful of wind someday. Number three, no matter how much you gain on earth, you're going to leave it all behind when you die. And you don't know whether you're leaving it behind to somebody who will use it wisely or use it foolishly. Number four, life holds difficulty for everyone, the child of God as well as the unbeliever, but God has something better in this life and in the life to come. And number five, God's wisdom, knowledge, and joy are better than anything that this world has to offer, folks. Amen. I personally believe Solomon wrote this book of Ecclesiastes near the end of his life, long after he wrote Proverbs, long after he wrote Song of Solomon, and following a time that he had gotten away from the Lord and lived for earthly things, lived for earthly wisdom and for earthly riches, but ultimately he came back before the end of his life, came back to God. And God used him to write this to direct us. Don't get away from God. Don't think the world has more to offer than God has to offer. And so what he's giving us in instruction is not just opinion. He has actually lived it. And he can say, don't live this way. 
And here's the conclusion of the matter. Instead of trying to spend all of our life trying to figure out life, just stay close to God and enjoy the blessings He gives. That's the way to have an enjoyable life as a child of God. So I'm going to close with two questions. What is the priority of your life? And the second question is this, what is the priority of my life? You have to turn it inward, right? We can look at other people and say, oh, they're living for the world, but what am I living for? I said last week or sometime we're not to get so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. But folks, we need to live with our eyes turned toward heaven. One man said it this way, keep your eyes on Jesus and tell the world what you see. We're to live for the Lord. We're to live for His blessings. And we're to trust Him to take care of the things. Now, will God bless us with things? He could. But He might bless us by taking away some things too. We need to trust Him in all of those things.